Welcome to the Exec MBA Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share my recent conversation with Billy Hughes. Billy is a Gimba Format graduate in our Executive MBA class of 2020. He and I recently connected via Zoom to talk more about his background, how he decided to pursue an MBA, what led him to Darden, uh, what he gained through his experience in the Executive MBA program, and what he's been up to since graduation. Uh, Billy currently works at Victoria's Secret in their compliance group, and it was fascinating to hear about how his global travels in the program have really paid dividends for him as he's moved into this new role at Victoria's Secret. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here is my interview with Billy Hughes. Billy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, one of the real treats of hosting the Exec MBA podcast is I get to schedule time with people I haven't seen in a little while, and I get to ask them all these questions about what they've been up to. And so the conversation that I'm, I'm sure I would have just tried to have with you anyhow on a phone call or at, a, at some sort of an event, get to have with you now here uh, with, a, with an audience. It's, it's great. How are you doing? Yeah, man, I'm doing good. It's like to just chat and catch up um, and talk about some of the things that are going on. Um, I was telling you before we, we started that uh, today is three weeks since the birth of uh, my wife and I's first child, Kate. Um, so yeah, the, the sleep deprivation is real, but um, being a new parent is pretty awesome. So i um, excited to chat. Well, congratulations. Is everybody doing okay? Yeah, everybody's good. Um, it was a long journey to get here, but um, everything's been pretty easy in the first couple of weeks. Um, Kate's eating, she's sleeping, we're somewhat sleeping. Um, so yeah, it's all good. That sounds about right. I, I, I do recall, I, I don't have kids myself, but nevertheless, um, talking with friends and, and you know, students that had kids uh, early, early in that process, I think sleep suffers a bit. You probably uh, wake most of, the, most of the day. It makes me appreciate like the Darden friends that I had that did it during the program. Because, I mean, I, the biggest thing we did was get married. I got married during Darden. But um, I remember like learning teammates that had kids. And I have a whole new appreciation for what it's like to do that and, you know, read case studies and <laughs> take exams at the same time. Yeah, the, the thing that I was talking about with uh, Colin Wright Prusky, who was here on the podcast not so long ago, was that in any given executive MBA cohort, right, the class matriculates, you can look around the room and you can see some people who maybe have less on their plate than you do. And there's sure. definitely people who have, who have more. And more. I mean, I'm thinking about all the people who became first time parents uh, in this program, during this program, people who moved across the country, took on new roles, like life continues apace while you're in the executive MBA program. Yeah. And I think like rolling with it is part of the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I feel like I was definitely on the blessed to not have as many life changes side of the spectrum. Um, so I don't know, sometimes it helps though. Like, I think one of the things, um, and we could talk about this if you want about Darden was, I think it kind of taught me how to compartmentalize my time a little bit. It's kind of like, okay, I got to write an essay, got two hours to write the essay. I'm going to write it in those two hours because that's the time that I have. And that is a little bit like parenting too, where it's like, 
okay, we've got a feeding schedule. That's when these things are going to happen. And then the rest of life kind of fits into that schedule. And I wouldn't have been nearly as good at that had I not done the working in school thing at the same time. Um, it makes you wonder, like people ask me, like, what are you watching on you know, Netflix? And I was like, well, I used to do that. I used to follow sports teams. And uh, some of those things suffered a little bit during school and now uh, being a parent, but you try to squeeze it all in. I love that point. Uh, I think the hardest thing to explain to prospective students, at least as an admissions officer, is, you know, a lot of our time when we're talking with people on the phone or events is people really trying to wrestle with the time commitment. Yeah. You know, how many hours per week and really trying to understand it in this, I honestly think in a way that's much more precise than the, the reality for most students. Um, and it, you know, my impression, again, as somebody who's outside of the experience, but close to the students is one, whatever tasks you have to do will conform to the amount of time that you have for those tasks in a given yes. day, in a given week. There's a like a brute force aspect to this. Like you'll just find your way through it. It's not always going to be elegant, but you know, through determination, the support of your classmates, support people at home, support people at work, faculty, list goes on. You will find your way through it. Just keep moving forward. And the thing goes by much more quickly than you expect. And you're learning a ton. You don't really have that moment to kind of like stop until almost you get to the very end. I'm thinking about our, our class. It's about to go to LR2 down in Charlottesville. And I think this is the first time in the program talking with those students. They've ever had that moment to kind of like really kind of look back and like, oh, my gosh, I have done so much, which is just incredible. It's a sprint for sure. And I think on the time commitment thing, I think where I landed on that is some things I was faster at than other colleagues and some things I was a lot slower at and it kind of evened out. So, you know, I was an English major, right? English and public policy. Um, and I can not bang out a paper, you know, very quickly to a pretty decent quality bar. Um, if you give me, you know, the reading and, and sort of a topic to go after, like, that's just one of the things that I'm good at. On the other side, probably 90% of the class can build an Excel model faster than I can um, for stats or um, decision analysis or that kind of stuff. So like, I would always have to invest more time in the quant work to get it to where I wanted it to go. And then maybe like under invest a little bit in some of the writing stuff because it just came a little bit easier. Um, and I think everybody kind of finds their balance and where they spend more time versus less time. That's such a good point. Everybody comes with strengths and areas that they're going to continue to develop during the program. I think that is an important note to keep in mind, particularly when you're taking on something like an MBA program to remind yourself that the reason why you're here is you're trying to fill in these gaps. So if you find mm -hmm. yourself in a class and it's taking more time and maybe it's not clicking for you to recognize like, well, that's actually good because guess what? It means that you're going to know more than you knew when you started the program. Like it's all growth. It's all totally. You're all you're just gaining knowledge that you you did not have previously. Yeah, and, and that's also like the approach I took to things like electives and stuff at the end when you're starting. To, as you said, look back and reflect a little bit. It's like okay, not sure that I want to take M and A or entrepreneurial finance, but I'm going to learn a lot more in those classes, even if I'm just average or slightly better than average um, at it. Um, like the level of learning is much greater than if I take another communications class or leadership class. And that's just, you know, me. Um, so I tried as best I could to kind of challenge myself with the optional classes because 
I felt like even if I only got a 75% on an exam, I was still going from zero to 75 as opposed to, you know, 85 to 90. Um, so I would encourage anybody to take kind of the same approach when you get to pick some of the classes. Well, Billy, we started to get a little bit of a sense of your background. So let's mm-hmm. let's talk about you and who you are, um, what you're doing now, but probably also equally importantly, what you did before coming to DART. So, so tell us your story. Yeah. So um, graduated undergrad back in 2008 from Duke and thought that I wanted to be a lawyer, um, but wanted to get some business experience first. Um, and so I went to go work for a consulting firm um, whose clients were all um, general counsel, chief compliance officers, chief auditors, heads of risk management, that kind of thing. Um, so that was um, corporate executive board or CEB. And that's the corner of the consulting firm that I applied to um, on the premise that I would get to know lawyers as clients and be able to decide if I really wanted to go to law school. Um, did it for a couple of years. Um, and decided that I'd rather at some point go down the MBA route. But also um, there was this like little niche uh, area called compliance and ethics that was like five or 10% of what a general counsel at a big company would do with their time um, that I just found really interesting because it was kind of the intersection of legal issues that big companies have to deal with, HR, behavioral science, you know, how do you kind of create the conditions in a big Fortune 500 company to uh, have employees speak up and have there be a strong tone at the top um, and train employees the right way? And I, I never thought that would be a, a, a niche or um, area of expertise that I would find interesting. Um, but after a couple of years at the consulting firm, I kind of specialized in that. Um, and then CEB was bought by Gartner. Um, and I stayed essentially at the same company for 13 years, which I feel like is like weird in, in this day and age. Like, I don't know that many of my friends that have had their first job out of college be the one where they stay at for a decade plus. Um, but I felt like I was still learning, loved the subject matter area that I was in, um, loved my clients, got better at managing bigger and bigger teams. Um, which was definitely a learning curve. You'd kind of do everything wrong once um, and learn from your mistakes. And then um, Darden kind of helped me think through what I wanted to do next. Um, You know, I'm sure you've talked about this on many, many other podcasts, but, you know, was I a switcher or a climber or an explorer? I don't know. There's probably new monikers that you guys are using these days, but I like bounced back and forth between all of those things. I didn't know if I wanted to stay at Gartner um, and kind of be like a lifer consultant. I didn't know if I wanted to be climber. I don't know if I wanted to kind of explore um, starting my own business or being an entrepreneur. Um, I didn't know if I wanted to switch. Um, And so I think depending on what point in the 20 months you asked me, I would have given you a very different answer about what I was exploring at Darden. Um, but I think it was a lot of self-discovery. And, and one of the places I came out, and then I'll take a breath, is uh, I liked what I was doing. Like I liked the content that I was working on. I liked compliance and ethics. I liked ESG. I liked that aspect of like kind of creating social change within a big corporation. Um, and so post-Darden, um, I took a spin 
at a finance consultancy, um, realized that it wasn't for me. Um, and where I ended up today is I uh, went in-house to go work for one of my past clients who was a client of mine for 10 years. Um, and I'm an AVP uh, in the ethics and compliance department of Victoria's Secret. So I'll let that sit for a minute and see what your next question is. Well, Billy, I love so much of what you shared. And your story is interesting to me. I say this as somebody who went to law school and uh, knows that path and journey a little bit. When I hear you talk about compliance and governance and ESG and these kinds of things, I mean, it's legally related, right? This is, it's kind of in, in, in that world a bit. Um, but it's, you know, it's not just the bailiwick of, of lawyers, for example. Um, do you feel like that work still scratches whatever itch maybe led you to think about law school? Or how, do, it, how do you think about that? I think it does because there's legal thinking that's involved and assessing risk um, and being able to read really complicated jargony contracts, documents, whatever, and pull it out. But I think the thing that I might be a little bit better at, um, it's almost like a competitive advantage because I, I work in a compliance ethics department. Most of my colleagues that are my level are lawyers. Um, I'm not. Um, but I think part of my competitive advantage is I'm a little bit better at taking the concept that we're trying to teach through a policy, through training, through some new company initiative, and like make it sound like a human as opposed to make it sound like a lawyer. <laughs> um, I think my default is a little bit more marketing focused, um, like sort of putting myself in the user, the employee seat and saying like, if somebody told this to me, would I think it was a credible message as opposed to going right to how can I jam as many clauses in this policy as possible to, you know, cover all of our potential risk areas. Um, so I don't know, long winded way of saying, yes, it scratches the legal itch for sure. But I actually think that I'm better at the non-legal parts of the job. And that's one of the more valuable things uh, to my team. That last point is a really fascinating one. It makes me think a lot about the Darden experience and what you're actually doing in a Darden classroom, right? The root of the MBA experience at Darden is communication. It's talking in a classroom with people with different backgrounds, perspectives, experiences, appreciating other people's perspectives and experiences. And, and something that a lot of alumni mentioned to me is knowing those people are in the room as you're sharing your perspective and being mindful of how they might hear what you're saying. And mm -hmm. that sounds very relevant to what you're talking about and very, very real in mind that work. Yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of in consulting and in this job, I've done a lot of facilitated training, workshop type stuff, even like keynote speaking and if you can't read the room, like if you can't understand the, I had an old colleague used to call it like the barometric pressure in the room. Like if you don't, if you can't understand whether this is a high stress environment, people are relaxed, if they're absorbing your message, if they're tuning out, um, if they're, you know, doing something else, like you have to kind of have a good radar for that. You can't just be focused on what you're saying. It's, it's definitely about getting the feedback from the environment around you. I mean, for compliance and ethics and internal investigations as part of the role too, um, you know, sometimes you have people that are at the most stressful moment in their corporate career talking to you. Um, they feel like something's gone wrong. Um, they feel like they might be retaliated against because they spoke up. 
Um, they feel like they're reporting something that happened that their colleague did who they love, but they felt compelled to come forward. And so, you know, that sort of EQ, like having the, the emotional intelligence to be able to understand and empathize with somebody in like maybe one of their toughest or worst moments is a huge part of the job. And if you're ignoring it, like you're not doing it right. Um, I used to, <laughs> I used to be on sales calls as a consultant. Um, and we, we, a client would say something like, you know, we just laid off 500 people at our company. And, you know, occasionally you'd have a salesperson that would let that wash over their head and would say something like, great, let me tell you about the new feature in our product. And it comes off so tone deaf if you're not listening to the conversation, you're not understanding, sort of empathizing, like, okay, what are they trying to tell me? Um, a lot of that stuff is practiced in a Darden classroom. You get better at it from listening to your colleagues, um, especially live versus virtual. Um, and I think I got better at it over the 20 months of the program for sure. Well, how did you shift from law path to an MBA is the right next step for, for me? Yeah, I think, um, I wanted to learn all a number of things that I missed. So an undergrad, you know, I obviously took accounting and a couple classes like that. Um, but I never had a really strong finance background. And I thought, you know, someday if I want to go in-house in a role like the, the one I'm in now, or I want to be a GM at a company down the road, I'm going to need to know how to be a P&L leader um, and manage a budget um, and look at variance um, and talk to other functions, have a good conversation with a CFO where I'm playing at their level. Um, you know, on, on metrics that they care about um, and, you know, forecasts that they're building. And I felt like I knew my subject matter area and I thought I was a pretty decent manager when I was in consulting, but I didn't have the sort of broad-based ability to play at the same level with any member of the C-suite in a future role. And so for me, I think Darden was filling in some of those gaps and kind of making me a more, I hope, like well-rounded executive. Um, and I, I'll tell you, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not, wouldn't make this up. Like I'm, I lean on, especially the finance classes, the quant classes, the stuff that I was the worst at. Um, you know, going going into Darden, I lean on that stuff a lot in my role um, to be able to have conversations across the C-suite. So what about Darden appealed to you? I mean, knowing, knowing your story, knowing that you were in, in, in the DC metro area as you were you know, doing your research, I, I'm sure location was part, part of the story and as it is for, for a number of our students. But I wonder um, what, else, what else appealed to you about the, about the Darden Executive MBA program? A bunch of different things. I think, um, maybe this isn't everybody's number one, but um, case method was probably number one for me. I learned better through... I know that I learned better through anecdotes and stories and being able to start with a case and work backwards to the concept. Um, that was just important to me that that was the learning style of the vast majority, if not all the classes. Um, and going through the 20 month plus months of the program, like I can tell you that really helped me a lot to be able to ground the concepts in, okay, here's an actual case. 
um, and actually writing a couple of cases during Darden was, that was some of my favorite projects that I worked on. Um, so number one, case method and the style of the classes was really important to me. And I, I put location right up there too. Um, being able to do it, and we struggle with this word sometimes, but part-time, I mean, it's not really part-time, it's a full-time workload for sure. Um, but being able to do it on a flexible schedule where I could go, um, you know, go to class after work, um, go to residencies on the weekends, plan sort of my PTO around some of the amazing global trips that we went on. Um, like the flexibility of being able to do that um, without having to get on a plane for me, um, except for the Gemba stuff. Um, you know, that was, that was really important to me. Um, and then faculty, you know, I, I had a lot of conversations with past students um, before I, I know, you know, like Sean Kumar, who was a friend of mine um, and, and many, many others. And they said, look, you know, you're going to get the best professors here no matter what. And that definitely played out. So those would be my, that's my short list of reasons what, why Darden versus somewhere else. Yeah. Case method comes up quite a bit on the podcast and, you know, it's interesting. I think particularly for people who've been out working for a while and also thinking about doing a program in the midst of a very full life and busy schedule and all this kind of stuff. I don't know what it would be like to work, you know, a whole week and then, you know, come in for that weekend residency and then just sit through a lecture. That does not sound, that does not sound great. Um, and I also think the thing that we talk with prospective students about a lot is like, okay, case methods of pedagogy, you're going to learn in this kind of active learning environment. One of the things I think that might be a little bit underrated when people look at the program and, and kind of think about that is the implication it has for who else is in the room with you and the intentions of, of those people. Mm -hmm. I, I think people tend to overlook that a little bit. I think it gets you talking about your own stories faster. So when you tell me a story about a business problem and I have to absorb it, I think immediately you're sort of in a mindset where you're like, okay, how do, how have I experienced this in my own career and how can I relate it to whatever problem and story is in front of me? Um, when you start with the lecture, the concept, sometimes it's hard to kind of step back and talk about like, well, how does this actually apply? But um, connecting story to story is sometimes a little bit faster. All right. So you come to Darden, you're a brand new executive MBA student, navigating the first year core curriculum. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, it's a challenge for sure. Um, people joke sometimes about business school and getting an MBA that it's really all about networking and that's a big part of it, but there was no joke in terms of the amount of work. And I'm not trying to scare anybody off by that, but, and to the point we we're making before, you know, the work kind of fits itself into whatever time you have available, but it's a commitment. Um, I think I got used to waking up early, uh, you know, reading cases instead of other books that I would read before I went to sleep. Um, but for me, anyway, um, I think it kind of helped me prioritize my time a little bit um, and get better at doing things in, you know, 60, 90, 120 minute blocks. Um, <laughs> my best advice would be if you have a significant other, 
uh, have all kinds of conversations up front with them about the time commitment. Uh, I did, but um, then you it, you live it, and it's different experience when you're talking than when you're talking about it beforehand. Um, and you know you have to have someone that's supporting you that is very patient um, and will understand that when you say I've got class from X to Y, like you're kind of trying to plug in and learn. Um, and when you have a residency for a weekend, um, you know you're there with your class ideally, and you're getting the full experience, and you're not you know. Um, coming home every night, or uh, you, you might be staying at the hotel, even though it's the same city that you're living in. That's the best way to do the program, in, in my opinion, is to sort of immerse yourself in it when you can, um, and especially for the global trips. Um, so lots of upfront conversations about commitment with your significant other. And then same with work. I mean, I was lucky enough to, at the time at Gartner, be working for a boss that I'd had for eight or nine years. Um, and so, you know, he was in my wedding, he's a friend of mine, like, but not everybody has that um, experience at work while they get an MBA. Um, so it was easy for me to carve out the PTO and, you know, get the letters signed on this is what I'm doing and kind of get buy-in on the work side. Um, but those are two huge conversations that anybody that gets in needs to have ASAP. Yeah, the thing that I've loved about hosting the podcast, in addition just to catching up with people I, have, I haven't seen in a little while, is hearing about all the interesting ways that students have like scraped time from their schedule. Like, oh, I had 30 sure. minutes here and like I used my lunch break this way or like there was a commute time when I was going from X to Y. And I mean, I've heard everything from like PDF screen readers at 1.5 oh, yeah. speed to like, I mean, totally. the, list, the list goes on. And, I, you know, I actually, I don't get to read that many cases, but I think sometimes people think it's going to be real dry. There's some of these cases have like a little bit of a fictional structure to them um, in the sense of like, so-and-so was sitting at their desk and they were thinking about, I, I always love those cases. It's funny because if you read enough of them, if you read, you know, once you get up into the hundreds of, of reading them, like you kind of, in a joking way, you can almost talk like you're writing a case. Like they do sort of have a cadence and a, uh, like the thing about like so-and-so was staring at their desk looking out the window like there's probably 50 cases that start with like some version of that first line which is always very funny um but yeah to your point on tricks like we tried everything like dragon dictation stuff and you know turning uh cases into essentially a podcast that you could listen to on the bus or the metro i mean yeah we shared all kinds of tips around that and you figure out what works for you um you know, time saving for me, the thing that worked the best for me was finding a learning team that I meshed with. Um, and, you know, if it's still the case, uh, you kind of get assigned your first learning team. I'm still um, in touch with all of those guys. Um, but learning teams kind of mix and match over the course of Darden and you figure out, you know, what group sort of learns like you and, who has complementary skills and, you know, I can crush a summary of 10 chapters of reading faster, but if I can partner up with somebody that can, um, you know, build a spreadsheet, like maybe that'll save some time a little bit if we can divide and conquer. So yes, there's tricks and there's some really good ones, but the people that you're there in the program with are the best time saver if you can get it right. 
Yeah, you're right, Billy. We still make learning team assignments, but we also give students that flexibility to seek out another team. And, you know, a lot of teams, it really comes down to schedules, preferred work styles, all these kinds totally. of things. Um, and, you know, we're just there to kind of, we make this team assignment to get you started, you know, and then students can kind of go, go forth from there. And I think it's a nice, we, we've taken to announcing the learning teams prior to the start of school these days, which I think students have been appreciating because first day of school, whether it's first grade or an executive MBA program, still the first day of school. You, you can feel it. Like, it's amazing kind of being up on the stage, introducing the class, all that kind of stuff. You kind of feel that wave of like anxiety, people yeah. are a little bit nervous. Mm -hmm. And like just knowing there's four or five other people out there, you've had a Zoom call and hopefully you've been coming to meetups and things that we've been doing during the summer, but not everybody's schedule permits. And, you know, students, you know, some of our students live far, far away. And so just knowing there's a few familiar faces and people that easy social touch point for you as you're getting started, I think that has so much value. Mm -hmm. I agree with all that. Well, let's talk about your career journey because you mentioned kind of being in this more exploratory posture when you came to the program. You know, you mm -hmm. were considering a few different paths and how did you, in, how did you kind of work through that process and ultimately say, Hey, you know what? I'm a switcher. Yeah. I, it's hard to say what I really ended up at. I don't even know if I would call it a switcher because it's kind of the same field, but I did eventually switch companies. Um, I don't know. I think for me, it was trying a little bit of everything. So, you know, I took some of the entrepreneurship classes and talked extensively with some of my colleagues that, you know, had started their own businesses um, when I was like playing with the idea of launching my own consulting firm and doing some culture and ethics work um, on the side. And, you know, I spent a decent amount of time kind of looking at what would the financials be to actually do that. Um, and I think going through that experience and talking to others um, was fun. It's always fun to think about doing something different, but um, I think I just landed on, you know, I'm a better operator. I, I like the field that I'm in. I'd rather work within a system rather than try to create my own system. That kind of like X'd off the entrepreneur uh, possibility, at least for now. Um, climber, I think... I think at Gartner, and I'd already been there 13 or 14 years, I think I'd kind of done everything I wanted to do in terms of climbing the ladder and, you know, managing bigger and bigger teams. And there's always more, but I think I was ready to try something else, learn a bit more about different companies. Um, and so I think I kind of knew going in that while I loved my job and my boss and especially my team, um, you know, in the next, let's say, three to five years, I was going to be trying something else. And so that kind of leaves like the explorer switcher frame of mind. Um, and I think one of the things in consulting, and I heard this from lots of Darden, Darden colleagues, was um, you give advice, you're kind of flown in to talk to the client about their problem, and you rarely get to see how it plays out. Now, if you're lucky and you work for, you know, BCG or McKinsey, maybe you get to work on multiple modules with the same client and sort of see things in succession. But the life of a consultant in most consulting firms is you do your research, you make a recommendation, and then you move on to the next problem and try to solve it and make a different recommendation. And I wanted to kind of live with the results of my decisions a little bit. Like I, I knew that I wanted to go in-house 
Um, and I knew that it, I wanted it to be at a B to C company because I felt like something in consumer products or retail um, would scratch an itch that I had, just kind of like being able to connect the work that I was doing to real life. Um, so I guess for me, like big picture, it was just a process of elimination. I don't think that's unique. I feel like yeah, you might talk to some colleagues that are like, yes, I'm a switcher or yes, I'm a climber. Give them a few months. Like they'll be thinking about something different after a couple more Darden classes. So I think it's a bit of a, a process of elimination to, to test each one out, see yourself in that role, and then, you know, make the best decision for you. That's such a good point, Billy, because we, we tell people all the time that like, yes, we signal these kind of aspirational categories, but it also feels a little unfair to kind of say, well, just identify in one way, please, because the whole process of going through this program is about expansion, expansion of opportunity, expansion of your skill set, expansion of your perspective, what you feel is possible for you in the world. And um, with that, I do think you're right. It's like you, you have to put everything on the table and then kind of say, well, I know I don't like this and I know I don't want to do that. And then eventually through that process of elimination, you will arrive at the path, the, the next thing for you. And by the way, this will only continue to iterate on itself as you go forward. Yeah. And you could be convinced to go back away that you've already eliminated. I, I think that happens too. Um, it's kind of like undergrad. Like how many people have you ever met where they're like, yeah, I mean, this, is, this was me too. Like, oh, I applied to undergrad pre-med and ended up as an English major. Like that's a very common collegial experience. And I think this is sort of the business school equivalent. Um, there's always a little bit of self-discovery, no matter how much you think you're locked into, this is why I'm going to Darden. Well, talk to us about your post Darden path, right? So you mentioned mm -hmm. working for, um, you know, one company and some financial uh, consulting firm and then kind of moving uh, to Victoria's Secret. Talk us through all of that. Yeah. So um, a couple different experiences. So like I said, I was working for Gartner for a long time. I'd led different sized teams um, and wanted to kind of do something a little bit different. So the job I took after Gartner was with a company called um, ACA Group. Um, and it was still in sort of the compliance and ethics space, but for a totally different audience. So now we're in financial services, chief compliance officers at um, private equity shops and hedge funds. Um, and interesting challenge as building a product for them. So it was more of the equivalent of like a product manager role um, for those that, that know what that looks like at um, a tech company or um, a consumer products company where like I had a product that I was building um, and working with all different functions to be able to try and get it off the ground, um, but still in the, the subject matter expertise space that I, I knew. Um, very cool experience. Wouldn't, wouldn't give it back, um, you know, running a product and trying to build something new. Um, but financial services was tough for me. I mean, very highly regulated, very technical. It can take, you know, decades to um, really know the space um, and, you know, understand how the SEC looks at all the different compliance things that financial firms have to deal with. 
Um, and I'd had like more of a generalized experience where I'd worked with all different industries and in consulting. I'd never really focused on financial services. And so the learning curve was just, um, and I found out reasonably soon that it wasn't necessarily the space that I wanted to be in. Um, and so serendipity, and like, this is how these things sometimes happen. Like I got a call from an ex-client um, who is a friend of mine, Boris Deegan. He was the chief compliance officer at Abercrombie & Fitch for many years. Um, and he was moving to Victoria's Secret. Um, if anybody knows the history here, um, Victoria's Secret used to be part of L Brands. Um, so L Brands um, as a company had all of these different retail brands under it. Um, Lane Bryant, Abercrombie and Fitch, Bath and Body Works, Victoria's Secret. Um, they kind of divested a number of those brands over the years and landed on the final two, which were Bath and Body Works and Victoria's Secret. Um, and then last year spun both companies off um, into their own separate IPO. So it was going to work for a pretty well-known established brand globally. Another thing that I liked about this job is uh, I can talk about global experience a little bit and how that's helped. Um, but uh, doing it for a company where they were still kind of in a building startup-y mode. So it was almost best, this job was best of both. It's a company that has mature operations and a really well-known brand. But because of the IPO was kind of splitting things off from a larger company and willing to look at... Um, building stuff from the ground up again. Um, and then, you know, for moving in-house, going, having your boss be somebody that you've known for 10 years before you work, walk in on day one is like, you know, not everybody gets that experience. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful that that's the context that I get to learn how to do this job in. Um, but yeah, I don't know that it was, I think just being open to opportunities as they pop up um, going into things with an open mind, um, trying to figure out what you're going to learn and how it's going to advance your career and how it's going to be different and complementary to your past experiences. Like those are the things that I, those are the hills that I'm willing to die on. Um, I don't know that you would look at me and you would say, that's a guy that works for Victoria's Secret. Um, it's more like, that's a guy that should be, uh, starting his own brewery. <laughs> um, and so I think like that is interesting when I talk to people now, they're like, Oh, you work for Victoria's secret. Like, how is that? And they have questions about angels and Heidi Klum and things like that. And, you know, I know the history of the company and, but I think in ethics and compliance, um, you want to go where there's work to be done. Um, and, you know, first three months at Victoria's Secret have been pretty amazing in terms of the turnaround that the brand is trying to go after um, and the focus on ethics and reputation um, and doing right by our clients and their customers. Um, so it's been great so far. Must be interesting to work for a brand that is globally well-known and probably has supply chain that spans the globe and you know, customers all over the world and all of, I mean, I think about the complexity of this business. I mean, it's got to be fascinating, Billy. Massive crash course in everything supply chain for me. Um, Cause part of my job in, in ethics and compliance involves 
third-party risk management and anti-corruption, anti-bribery. Um, and so, you know, boil that down to sounding like a human, not like a lawyer. And it's making sure that all the partners that Victoria's Secret works with are the right ones for us, vetting them um, in various ways, doing due diligence. Um, and part of my job is global. So we have offices in Sri Lanka and China and Vietnam and India. Um, and later this year, I'll be basically doing a hopefully fingers crossed on travel around the world tour to be able to introduce myself to some people live um, that can kind of be my eyes and ears on the ground for spotting some of those bribery and corruption related issues. And I don't think that I would be nearly as confident in doing that had I not been to China, been to India, um, into Brazil, um, you know, spent time in other markets with Darden, um, going to visit companies and talking about the culture. Um, I'm a hundred percent sure that there's still a million things that I need to learn, but not going in cold to that kind of global executive job. Um, it's going to be super invaluable. Yeah, I was going to ask about your experience as a, as a GIMP format student. For our listeners who are just learning about the Executive MBA program, there are two formats. There's an mm -hmm. IMBA format or Executive MBA format, and there's a global Executive MBA format. As, as you may be picking up from what Billy's sharing here, GIMBA students, they travel four times uh, during the course of the program. And the global residency options, we're now up to like a menu of potentially 12 global residency locations. Expansion. Wow. I mean, it's a significant expansion in terms of the global offerings. I have to believe getting outside the U.S. was a real eye-opener for you and your program experience. Huge. Extremely important and fun um, and useful part of the Darden program for me. And even like being able to triangulate between the first global residency and the third or fourth one, I think made a huge difference for me. So we went to go see um, the inside of a GM factory in Brazil. Um, Tons of workers on the floor, very little automated. Then we went to go see a GM joint venture factory in China. I don't think there was a person on the floor. Is almost 100% automated. Um, and so, you know, be able to kind of see the difference in the business environment um, in some of these places and, and make those kinds of comparisons, um, I wouldn't trade it. That was, for me, one of the best parts of the program. I had the chance to go with our class of 2021 to uh, to Embraer in, in Brazil. Awesome! Um, I remember that that trip very well. It is first of all, it's you know this inc you know incredibly you know proud company, you know, one of Brazil's you know really star com star companies. Recently been been acquired uh, by mm -hmm. Boeing, I, I, I believe, and they're kind of going through that process uh, while we were there, which is interesting. Um, but just being able to like go to the company headquarters to walk the floor to see the planes going through this like assembly line manufacturer to hear from the program manager for the E2, the, the, the newest plane they developed about that process and how they managed it. And it was ahead of schedule and I think under budget. I mean, I can tell you, you can go to Sao Paulo as a tourist. You're not, you're not doing that. Uh, you're not, you're going to get that kind of access. Definitely. I remember sitting in that room and, and watching that presentation. I mean, I definitely have a very 
vivid memory of that. And to your point, like even with the Boeing acquisition, like they are the one of the jewel companies of the country. Um, I mean, it's like the equivalent of a McDonald's or Coca-Cola kind of, I mean, that's sad, but <laughs> kind of thing in the US, or maybe we could find a better uh, country level example. Going to uh, Toulouse in France, Airbus is like, takes over that town, you know, and it's the same thing, but for Brazil. And um, that was a very cool experience. Well, Billy, an additional question before we kind of wrap up here. You feel like your Darden experience helps you uh, as you navigate everything at Victoria's Secret. Anything that you pull on in particular, I think it's always fun to hear how alums, even if they've been out for a couple of years, or maybe drawing, drawing on what they did as a student. Yeah. Um, I don't mean that to sound contemplative. Yes, for sure. I pull on my Darden experience um, weekly, if not daily. I think if I have to kind of wrap it up with a bow on the things that really stuck with me, um, it was definitely the time management skills that Darden taught me, um, how to get a significant amount of work done in the time that you have. Um, it was all of the quant skills. I'm much better at being able to read a balance sheet, um, and analyze a filing, um, and understand the numbers in the business that I'm in um, because of all the quant and finance core classes at Darden. Like that was a huge value add for me. Not for everybody. Some people have that stuff, you know, cold when they walk into Darden, but um, that was big for me. Um, and then this is the, the answer that I'm sure everybody gives, but it's the people. Um, you know, being able to bounce ideas off of people that were in my class um, as I thought about switching jobs, um, as I've become a parent, um, just getting it, having 200 people that um, are willing to give advice um, and give you the things that they learned from going through it. Uh, you can't beat that. So um, I would say every week I draw on some combination of soft skills, I'd be like time management, technical skills, um, those would be the finance core classes, and then the network, um, somebody that I'm talking to that can give me some insight into what they've done before. Well, Billy, we always ask the same last question of all of our guests here on the podcast. I wonder if you have a piece of advice that you would share with our listeners as they contemplate their own MBA journeys. Think, I think it goes back to something I was saying earlier, which is when you make the decision to get an MBA, take the classes that are harder for you. Challenge yourself with the stuff that you don't know because you likely are paying a lot of money for the privilege of um, you know all the great things about Darden, and you know don't go to the don't take the class that you already know really well. Um, do the stuff that scares you a little bit. And then when you look back years after you're in the program, you'll be very glad that you did. I love that advice because I think there's something that happens for people in this program. If you do that, if you take out, if you take those classes that are intimidating or maybe feel a little bit scary to you, we have all these formed ideas about who we are. And, you know, when people come to this program, they're oftentimes in their late 20s, early, mid 30s, early 40s. So our self-conception is pretty, pretty formed. And 
by taking those classes, kind of seeking out those challenges, you can prove to yourself that you can do more than what you thought, that how you would define yourself is perhaps not the full story, is, you know, you've got skills, you have abilities, you have talents beyond what you maybe initially thought. Like you may think, like, I'm not a quantitative person. And you actually learn that actually I can do all this stuff. I can learn finance. I can do DA. I can, I can take the mergers and acquisitions class. I can do entrepreneurial finance. And that sense of capacity building that I think happens mm -hmm. for students is possibly one of the most powerful things psychologically that happens for students in the program. Like learning what your capacity is. I think that's a hundred percent right. I also think like the nature of Darden and most top business schools, uh, if not all of them, is like it's people that have been pretty successful in almost everything they've ever done. Um, and frequently, I'll put myself in this category, a lot of like type A people that think that they need to get an A in everything um, and, you know, chase whatever the top grade is in the class or top 10% or whatever the, the plaudits are, the, the, you know, the equivalent. Um, I think it's more about what you learn and what you take away. And that's why if you do the stuff that's hard, even if you, like your learning will be greater, you have increased your capacity that much more um, through the challenge um, than by doing the stuff that you were already good at. Well, Billy, it is always such a pleasure catching up with you. Congratulations to your family and on the new addition, uh, baby, baby Kate in this world. And um, so excited uh, for everything that's happening for you. Uh, when I saw the update on LinkedIn that you were now working at Victoria's Secret, I was like, we got to get Billy on the podcast. There's a story here. I would awesome. love to hear. hear what there is doing. a story. There is a story. Well, I'll, I'll throw it back at you for the, la the very last thing. Uh, what's your best piece of sort of, um, I mean, you've seen a lot of people go through parenting through, through Darden, like your best piece of parenting advice either that you've heard or lived or um, gotten from somewhere. Oh, gosh. Wow. All right. I appreciate this. You know, Colin, right, Prisky came on the podcast. He did the exact same thing to me. I asked him a question. He was like, you know what, Brett? I think you probably know it better, know it better than I do. Um, so I very rarely give parenting advice, Billy. But, you know, being around moms and dads who have done this program, I'm going to come back to something you shared previously, because I think the parents who are able to really successfully navigate this program are those folks who are so intentional about how they're using their time and how mm -hmm. they're communicating with their partner, their significant other, their spouse, whomever the other people that are in that in their household are. Because one, where I see students kind of get tripped up a bit is when they're trying to be in every place at the same time, right? So I'm trying, I'm here at school, but I'm trying to think about home and work stuff. And I'm at home, but I'm trying to think about school. Like I actually think, and this may be counterintuitive to people, the intention of saying, look, this is my school time. I'm doing school. And, you know, this is my home. This is my family time. I'm here. I'm fully focused on this. That is something that I've seen parents really do successfully in the program. And I think that presence is really valuable for people because it's the, when your mind feels really split and you feel kind of like you're trying to be in two or three places, that causes kind of an anxiety for people. Uh, you know, it can be very hard to sustain that for extended periods of time. And, I just see the parents kind of divide up their time 
in very thoughtful and intentional ways. And they may not start that at that place when they begin mm-hmm. the program, but I think they get there. And the other thing that I've heard, and I had a conversation with Stephen Weir here on the podcast about this, is like every two months, every quarter, sit down. Because his family had a newborn, you know, as they were, as I they remember. were navigating yep. the program. Every two months, sit down. What do we have going on as a family? Let's build out the calendar together. This is what my school schedule is going to look like. These are the classes I'm taking. This is my sense of these classes and how much time they might require for me and trying to set that expectation early. And I think it's, I think it's easier for people to have the conversation as, you know, they're, they're embarking upon the program, like in the summer and spring, you know, you're kind of trying to have, you know, engage about that. You probably feel like you have a lot more time to have those conversations. When you get into the flow of the program and everything, you may not feel like you have as much time, but that's probably why the conversation is even more important at that point, because it can get really easy to put it off and put it off and not talk about it. But being very intentional about how you communicate with your partner, I think is, is absolutely critical for people in this program. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think for me, that's what made it work. The sitting down with the calendar, Stephen Weir style, um, for sure. Um, and like, getting good at the context switching. Like, it's funny because it's like, you know, let's just say you block out your time and it's like, okay, these two hours are for work. These two hours are for family. These two hours are for school. That's fine. But if your transitions aren't like very good, um, it can kind of feel like you're racking focus in between some things and, and you don't necessarily do any of them very well. Um, and so I think learning how to transition from, this is my school time to this is my family time. This is my work time and do it in the right mood. (laughs) And I think assume positive intent, um, you know, all the time. I feel like we talked about that uh, in LR1 uh, and it, it is maybe the number. That's probably the best piece of advice for Darden, both with your home life and for all of your colleagues at Darden. If you can just go into every interaction, assuming positive intent, probably going to have a better better time with it well billy great to talk with you thank you so much for coming on the show and congratulations on everything so happy for you thanks for having me um and i'll throw it up to anybody that is considering darden uh exec program um gemba any of the versions if you want to talk about it i'm always around shoot me a linkedin message happy to tell you more about my experience and that was my interview with Billy Hughes, a Gimba Format graduate in our Executive MBA class of 2020. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at exec, that's E-X-E-C, MBA at darden.virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.